0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we'll be talking about one element of the medical devices space with Rei Jing CEO and co founder of AVC Technologies. Avisi is a University of Pennsylvania spin-out company developing a nanoscale ocular implant called Visiplate to stop blindness in patients with glaucoma, the leading cause of irreversible blindness worldwide. To date, Avisi has been funded by the National Science Foundation, Ben Franklin Technology Partners, the University of Pennsylvania, and others. AVC is a Johnson & Johnson J-Labs Incubated Company, a MedTech Innovator Accelerator Company, and a UCSF Rosamond Innovator. AVC has been recognized as one of the 10 most promising Philadelphia tech companies of the decade in Technically's Realist Startups 2020, a watchlist venture in Wharton Magazine, and a finalist at the 2019 South by Southwest Innovation Awards for Health, Med, and Biotech. Reijing co-founded VC while completing her degree at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: Hi Reijing, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and we are very excited to have you here today. You and your team have accomplished so much in very little time with your company VC, and we're glad that you're here to share your story and your insights and your experience with us today. So to start, um, it would be great if you could kind of walk us through the origin of the company and also the technology as well.
2: For sure. So I'm co-founder and CEO of Avizi Technologies. We are headquartered in Philadelphia and we're a preclinical medical device company that's working on a treatment for glaucoma. For context, glaucoma is the world's leading cause of irreversible blindness. Vision loss can't be cured or restored. And it's a neuropathic disease that's characterized by high pressure inside the eye. Essentially, the normal system that creates and drains nourishing fluid in your eye is blocked, which leads to high pressure building up um, and optic nerve damage. So what our device, Visiplate, does, it's an ultra-thin implant that can help divert the pent-up fluid to a different part of the eye, thereby reducing pressure within and protecting the optic nerve. So Avizi was started by myself and my co-founders while we were juniors at Penn. I was studying strategic management and finance, and my co-founders were studying material science, engineering, and operations uh, management, and all of that good stuff. And so we got together to compete in a technology commercialization competition back in 2016. And what we found was that a professor had invented a very novel, thin plate technology that was described as something as thin as a soap bubble with extremely interesting mechanical properties. For example, um, a lot of strength and flexibility for its scale, uh, its ability to withstand sharp deformations. And we thought all of these characteristics would work well in a medical device. And given the scale and the type of technology, we were we gravitated towards ophthalmology where a lot of the medical devices there are very small but can have an outsized impact. So we chose glaucoma in particular because this is a disease that affects a lot of people. 80 million people today have glaucoma and the surgical treatments are, there are numerous ones, but they all have differing failure rates. But For implants, as the last line of defense, they mainly fail because of their materials, their design, and their mechanism. So we thought we could really use this technology in our team to help disrupt that. So fast forward, we graduated Penn. And at that time, we applied for a grant at the university that's given to seniors to bootstrap and start a company. And that's called the President's Innovation Prize. And that was a fantastic experience. We won the prize. It was $100,000 of uh, project funds and then a $50,000 living stipend for everyone. And that helped us gain a little bit of preclinical data that we were then able to use to get SBIR funding from the National Science Foundation, and then later on continue to do great work and help attract some seed financing. So where we are today is we're getting ready for a first-in-human pre-clinical study, a first-in-man clinical study, in order to de-risk the feasibility and safety in humans.
1: How did you end up choosing this entrepreneurial path and forging this medtech company versus more of a typical path of a undergraduate. You know, When people you know, graduate from college, they typically find a job or go to graduate school. You know, founding a company is a very little percentage of all graduates do. So I'm kind of curious to hear, um, how did you end up choosing this path?
2: Well, I went to school to learn how to start companies, actually, that was always my goal. That's what I thought a Wharton business education would give me. I just didn't expect to have the opportunity to do something like this so early. And it was really the fact that Penn had this technology commercialization competition. Penn gave us the opportunity to go and out-license the technology, even though we hadn't had formal work experience. And all of these were contributing factors along with the fact that there's so much free money in university. And it's not just Penn, right? Any university, you can go and do entrepreneurial pitch competitions and you can go to accelerators. All of that contributed to me deciding to do this now in my time of in, in this time of my life because I really thought about I don't have that much opportunity cost right now if I'm going to go pursue this high risk career versus later on I might have more professional and academic preparation but I might also have other obligations in my family life or um, other aspects like that so I think it was definitely a mix of different factors. But I think for any student out there, don't be afraid to do something like this because coming from even just any college experience or not, if you apply yourself and you use the resources out there, you can learn so much just by reading online, right? And asking experts who are always willing to help young people who are curious. There's so much you can do that you don't necessarily need to feel daunted by. You don't necessarily need that Super high academic degree right now in this time point of your life to go and de risk something that you believe has potential. You can go to any university and go to the tech transfer office and ask to read the patents that are there. And these are awesome technologies and innovations that don't have a business application. And the university wants you to go and do something with it because that's how they're going to get a return on investing in that particular professor. You know, if anyone wants to do this kind of stuff, it's possible.
0: you alluded to this earlier in terms of how like the kind of the genesis of this technology and how like you it started off as a business project and then kind of morphed into a full-on company but can you just go into a little bit more detail in terms of like what were some of the steps taken to get to that product that you have now that you want to enter into human trials with
2: okay well back in 2016 when we were starting out all we had was this material uh straight from the fabrication facility and that material was alumina it was a 400 nanometer thick plate and our first thought was to see if this material and its construction is safe so we did a very small three rabbit three week study and we choose rabbits because their ocular anatomy is very similar to humans, but they're more irritable. So any reaction you see, you know, will be magnified. And we obviously, if we see a great, you know, no response, then ideally in humans, you see a good level of safety. So we did that and the material was hard to manipulate. The study went fine. The material is very inert, which you can already learn from literature, but we wanted to see for ourselves. And that kind of was a good go signal to think about different form factors, Improving the handleability. We ended up coating it with a polymer to make it even more biocompatible. And along that process, you know, now we're on the sixth iteration of VisaPlate, which will be our clinical units. And along that process, it was a mix of making sure we meet certain engineering requirements. The FDA, for our pathway at least, has um, guidelines on the international standards that you need to meet for. Devices that you're putting in the eye. And a lot of those are engineering specific requirements. So we are doing this and we're also thinking about the efficacy, as you mentioned, how much intraocular pressure theoretically will it lower? How much intraocular pressure are we seeing um, in these rabbit models that we're doing? And we also did like pig cadaver eyes and we did human cadaveric eyes. And all along you iterate on it and then you do your tests and then you go and get feedback. And that's the biggest part I would say for anyone. And getting feedback from the clinicians or your customers or whoever it is, you just have to do that constantly. Starting from understanding the need to understanding their reactions and feedback to every improvement you're making and making sure all along that you're on the right track, you're on the same page. And that is what has helped us get to where we are today. How did you go about getting these pigs and rabbits and Just speaking to getting the backing from professors and lab space as a Penn student, how did you go about that? So we didn't do these preclinical studies and work until we had graduated because we needed to manufacture the product ourselves. And you can only manufacture and practice the invention after you've licensed it. So let's take a few steps back and talk about how right after we graduated, the first thing we actually did was go and license out this technology. You, you can't practice it without owning it. And that was a huge negotiation process on its own. But let's just say we did it. And then we use the seed financing to or pre-seed financing to uh, find the right people to help us with this. So for animal studies, you go to a contract research organization. And they, you work with them to generate the protocols and you work with them to manage the budget and they conduct the study. They, you typically negotiate whether or not you want a final report and all of that. If you're doing animal studies, you want to look at the tissue reactions after the study. You want to be able to, you know, harvest the specimens and section them and then you usually send it to a histopathologist who will then create their own report. Now, Once you have all that data, then you go to the clinicians. So for us, we worked very hard in the very beginning to go out, you know, using our student status and getting feedback as a student, because I think that is such a huge advantage that all students have just saying, I go to school here and I'm interested in your field. Can we chat about this? And as you're chatting, you get a good sense of if they are interested in innovation and if they're the right people to help give you some feedback. So We were very fortunate to have a great physician, Dr. Edie Miller-Ellis, who's director of glaucoma at JI Institute, join us very early on as um, a champion and as a mentor. And through her, we met Dr. Richard Lewis, who's one of our advisors right now. He's the former president of the American Glaucoma Society. Uh, Dr. Ike Ahmed, who is uh, known as the father of MIGs, or minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. He's been involved in the development of so many products, amazing products. And then a wonderful ocular pathologist named Vivian Lee, who Dr. Vivian Lee at Shea Institute. And it's really by involving people early on and then asking them to give your feedback in a very honest way that you're able to iterate on this. So when you're asking us about you know, how we're able to think about doing this type of work, we also went through a number of incubators and accelerators. And I think these are a very underutilized resource. I think people are scared to go and apply, and you really shouldn't be. Um, we were accepted to MedTech Innovator Accelerator, which is arguably one of the most prestigious med device accelerators, but we were only accepted after applying three times, three years in a row. We were rejected for the first two, and we just kept trying. And after we got in, they pair you up with corporate mentors. For example, we're paired up with Hoya, which you know they have a great ophthalmic business and multinational company. And the people in that company were able to give guidance on the vendors they like or the endpoints they want to see. We're part of Johnson & Johnson J-Labs. That too was just an application process. Um, And we're paired up with the external innovation group in surgical vision. So again, their people are able to direct us and say, hey, like this protocol looks you know, a little funny here. have you thought about this? or do you know about X, Y, and Z, or have you talked to this CRO? They're really great. we've used them before. And those resources have been really invaluable to us as well. And then recently we're joined um, UCSF Rosamond Innovator, which is a little bit different. Um, they have connected us with like the SFBA and we get to learn a little bit more about downstream who are the people we might be talking to or thinking of when we transition more to a clinical study time in our life cycle. I think it's very important for people who want to start a medical device or pharmaceutical company, a biotech company to talk to the right audience. Right early on we went and pitched YC and we did the final interview two times and every single time I was like, okay, like this is the time we're going to get it. We're going to convince them that we can be Google for healthcare. That doesn't work out really. So, it's really about being precise with the resources and expertise that you want to speak to. MedTech is a very small community. Once you're in MedTech Innovator, for example, or any similar type of group, you see the same faces all the time. And that's going to help a lot. What is the long-term vision of the company in terms of do you think you might want to develop more within this technology for other indications that are not necessarily eye related to so like different implants or do you think you might want to consider additional treatments in ophthalmology what is sort of the the product pipeline looking yeah. like for us ophthalmology is where we really like to be it's where we have our network and our friends, and it's what we care about. so other applications are in the works for ophthalmology. but beyond that, the material is quite unique. And I would imagine there are other types of applications that I personally don't know about yet. And beyond that, I think one huge learning experience through this has been the fact that we have confidence in going out and acquiring technology, and we wouldn't have been able to feel that way had we not gone through the process of doing it. So I think out-licensing is in itself an art and a science and something you need to practice. But having gone through it once before, it's something that we're very open to continuing down the road as well. When anyone goes to a university to license out a patent, the university will generally negotiate some stake in the company. Uh, Percentage equity stake, and the biggest thing that they care about is royalties on future sales. So, for example, we have like a two percent royalty on future sales, which means if we sell one visit, play two percent right off the top goes to Penn. And there are other levers that you and the university will pull in this negotiation, including what about milestone payments? If we hit a major milestone like FDA clearance, what happens then? When the patent that the university has protected is, you know, open for licensing, that means they've already invested a great deal in getting that patent to that stage, tens of thousands of dollars, for example. And they generally want you to pay it back. So you have to negotiate how much of it you're going to pay back, you know, in what schedule are you going to pay it back, and all of that kind of revolves around your pitch to them. I'm going to use this technology in X field of use. And if your field of use is like super big and broad there, all of those levers get higher for the university because they want to cash in, you know, on your success, which is totally fair. They invested and this is how they are going to reap the return. The professor assigns all of his ownership rights to the university and PhD students do as well. In some cases, master students, um, and if you work for the university, so you're in a research lab and you invent something, that gets assigned as well. Although if you're an undergraduate and you invent something not on campus, not using lab resources, not working for the university, that's your own, typically. that's At, at least that's what it is at Penn. And that's what we had with plate. At the end of the day, this inventor professor will get some little stake of equity, but the university will manage it for him uh, or her. Um, and then when the time is right, they will get uh, their return.
1: We know that you know, the regulatory process, especially in healthcare, is very stringent and complicated, as it should be, because these um, devices, these drugs, are going to humans, and that they have to be safe and they have to be effective. And so, I, we'd love to hear more about your story of, of the regulatory journey um, for a VC and visit plate. For example, which pathway did you pursue for a visit plate? I think I, maybe you can tell us more about it. There are different paths you can take depending on if you're a device or a drug.
2: For us, we are a 510k pathway, aqueous shunt device. And what the 510k pathway allows us to do is get to market in a little bit more expedited fashion because we're proving substantial equivalence to a already marketed product. And the alternative pathway is a PMA. And that process would involve much larger clinical trials, a novel claim that the FDA would approve for marketing. And for us, we decided to go down the 510k because there are predicates and because it makes the most sense with the resources and our goals for the first market that we're trying to service. For pharmaceuticals, I can't say I'm an expert, um, but you're right. There are various types of pathways. Um, There is a pathway analogous to the 510k pathway where you also pick a predicate like drug. And I think a lot of companies have made use of that.
1: During this whole process, have you had to initiate contact with the FDA? And if so, how did those
2: conversations go? So I think that everyone thinks the FDA is really scary, but they're actually really awesome people and they're really nice. So we did the Q-Sub process and had an informational meeting. It was a lot of work leading up to it, I would say, because you're putting together a package and you have to submit it a certain way. They require you to burn CDs, believe it or not. They do not take electronic submissions. So you burn the CD and you send it all in and they say, yes, we're happy to meet you on this day. And you just hop on a train. Well, we were in Philadelphia, so we just hopped on a train, went to Silver Spring, Maryland, walked into the building. Um, only US citizens can enter the building. So that's something I didn't know about. And after you go through security, you wait in this lobby and then your lead reviewer comes out and gets you. And we were really lucky that day because we had like the head of the intracorneal implants division like there. And we had all of these scientific um, experts from biocompatibility and chemistry and everything there along with our lead reviewer. So we were able to gauge the room and get a good feel of what they thought about Visiplate as a concept. So you don't get guidance unless it's a formal guidance meeting, right? So that's why I think there is a distinction between doing a Q-sub versus doing a pre-sub, a formal like pre-IDE or pre, uh, you know, major big pivotal clinical study submission. But overall, it was a wonderful experience. They're really awesome people. And that was my experience with the FDA.
1: When did you have to, you know, have this informational session? Is it before the preclinical meeting? Is it before the clinical trial? Like, we'd love to get that sense.
2: I'm not a regulatory expert, but my regulatory expert says communicate, <laughs> no, <laughs> communicate as frequently and as often as you feel comfortable doing. Um, it can only help you. Really, I mean, they're there to help you. I think. You know the FDA's intentions are aligned with your intentions, which is to get a safe and effective and you know life changing application out to patients who need it. So you shouldn't be afraid in any sense. You should work with a regulatory professional. I think that can help alleviate any worry. Um, And those also exist as consultants. There are firms that specialize in this. And if you're a student, you can also go on. Your alumni database and look up people. I'm sure there are people in the alumni network who maybe work in regulatory that can help give some advice.
0: You brought up the fact that you have a, like a, a regulatory person and point of contact. What other kind of experts in the field did you bring in?
2: I would say we're still very young. So, you know, the first person we brought in was a technical expert who could help streamline the manufacturing process and make sure everything was in order. So, you know, our director of device engineering, Georgia. And then we brought on an operations and quality person. So, quality is something that isn't talked about enough, I think, for medical device startups, for biotech or pharmaceutical startups. Like, quality is very essential, and you should figure that out by working with someone who's done it before. And it's essentially ensuring that everything you do has a purpose and that every thing you put into your final device can be traced and all of that is very essential. So, you know, we're working with our quality and operations person now. We found him through the UCSF Rosamund Institute network. One of the mentors, you know, mentioned, "Hey, this person would be really great for you at this stage and we connected. We thought there was a great fit and his background clearly, you know, vice president of operations and quality for three very successful medical device startups. We just thought it was a blessing that he wanted to work with us and we could afford to work with him at this time point." So, that is where we are right now. We also brought on a clinical person, a clinical regulatory person, because they have the experience designing clinical trials and everything that goes along with applying for clinical trial approval. So you can actually do the study, making sure the study gets analyzed the right way, and then you can use the data. And that's also very important.
1: How were you able to um, go ahead and raise those funds? Um, I realized that you kind of Raised funds from a variety of different groups, not just on the East Coast, but really all over the country. It Would be great if you could kind of share the story there.
2: I think we've been able to be successful, and when I successful from an entrepreneur standpoint, which is you're maintaining control and autonomy, and essentially your ownership of the company. At our stage, I think relatively we've done a better job than a lot of people because we made use of non dilutive funding. And for students who might not know, there's a lot of non-dilutive funding out there that's not going to eat away at your ownership of the company, mainly through federal grants. So for businesses that start up and want to do a project to de-risk a potentially big commercial application, for example, you create a novel program that, you, that uses AI, for example, I don't know and you have this big defense application, you can go write a proposal to the Department of Defense or the National Science Foundation, and you could win $225,000 of free money, um, air quotes, to go and prototype and de-risk and further your science. So we made use of that pathway with the National Science Foundation, and the program is called the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program. And there are a couple phases to that. So the first phase, at least when we did it, it was like $225,000. And they've increased it since. So you all should look it up. And then after you complete that and write this report and you, you, you show that you use the funds, then you are eligible for a phase two. So the phase two is something we're going through right now, the application and due diligence process for, and that's $1 million. And if you get that, you can get a phase two B, which is if you get $500,000 of investor money, they'll give you $500,000 of this free money. And Taking advantage of these types of non-dilutive grants, and there are all different types, you know, all different agencies, the National Institutes of Health, the National Eye Institute, the National, the Department of Education, whatever really you want to go and pursue and do, you can go and do this program. So that was one big chunk of our financing. The other big chunk of our financing came from angel investors and family offices that really believed in what we're doing and want to be a part of it. And we, you know, are in the process of that right now. Stay tuned. Cool announcement coming. And that process is about you refining your pitch and your value proposition and telling your story about why you're doing this and what it could do for other people in the future.
1: you want to shift gears
0: and think about just the space in general that you're operating in—the medical devices space. How do you think? The space in general is changing. I know it's a really broad question, but uh, just from your experience building a company and speaking to investors and speaking to key opinion leaders, like what what do you think are some some big trends in uh, in the space?
2: I think medtech is having a resurgence. Maybe it's because of COVID, but we were seeing it even last year, where there are a lot of funds raising for investing in medtech. Medtech is a little bit different than others because the seed series A investors are very few and concentrated. But later on big players like NEA, you know, have dedicated life science funds or Blackstone, they have dedicated life science funds. So the challenge for medtech devices is really getting to that series A B C range and I think over the last couple of years, we've seen more people coming into the seed and the Series A. And that's one part of it. The other part of it I think is it's becoming a little bit more diverse. So now in these incubators and in these pitch days and these demo days, we're seeing a lot more female founders, people of color. And that's really inspiring and awesome because they're, you know, people of a diverse background are able to see problems in a different way and come up with solutions that um, may be really innovative and, and novel. So I think those are two really big trends. I think there's still a lot of room for growth in the medtech industry. There are the business model of outsource innovation continues to be the trend where big companies really rely on smaller companies to go and push the frontiers of, of what's out there. And then they have these big mergers and acquisitions and that helps drive the ecosystem definitely. And I think it's interesting that people are just getting comfortable with the idea that you can improve your health through procedures or through devices and you can live a healthier and longer life. So that's all very cool.
1: You know, medtech uh, industry is, you know, having this more of a diverse um, surges of, you know, female entrepreneurs, people of color, um, you know, coming in to create companies. And I believe you're... Um, one of the one of the entrepreneurs adding diversity to this industry and where we it's where it's very empowering to see that. So as you know as an Asian American female creating this company, founding this company, how has that you know, with that journey, um if you were to give advice to people who are, you know, similar to you, who could look to you as a role model, um, any advice that you would give to them?
2: I think it's important to always remember why you're doing something and Seek out people who can fill the gaps you have in your knowledge and skill set. The first is important because your passion is what will convince others to work alongside you and make your vision a reality. And then the second is important because no one can do it by themselves and you just won't know everything and you won't know what you don't know. So, seeking advice from the right people at the right time. Um, Not being afraid to ask for that advice is really important. And it's really fun. Just remember that when you're doing this, it's an amazing opportunity for you to dive in at your age or with your background or anything like that and to experience this because not everyone gets to do this. I think if you choose to do this, you're being very courageous and you're taking a risk that, Hey, later on, you know, might not be so much of a risk as you think right now. So just be brave and don't hesitate to ask for help. And if you need help from me, you can ask help. You can ask for help from me and I'm happy to do what I can. Thank you all so much for
0: listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at TheaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.